This is from the bookshelves of Forbes India. I am Divya Shekhar. Would you travel over 18000 kilometers for more than 50 days across the length and breadth of the country seeking an answer for what is India and what it means to be Indian in the 21st century? Our guest on today's episode did just that. Bhairavi Jani is a fourth generation entrepreneur. the executive director of supply chain and logistics company SCA group and the daughter of Tushar Jani who's the co-founder of Blue Dart Express she started her career with KPMG in the US before coming back to India welcome to the podcast bhairavi thank you so much divya it's wonderful to be here with you today Now your book touches upon various topics which it calls civilizational superpowers this includes food wellness heritage nature etc for the podcast i would like to specifically speak about entrepreneurship uh, starting with you growing up in a business family what did entrepreneurship mean to you and what are some of the early experiences that shaped your idea of entrepreneurship divya i think that's an excellent question to start with because i'm a fourth generation entrepreneur business has run in the family and my grandfather and my great grandfather and therefore my father passed on this simple truth that business is actually a collective exercise in trusteeship of society the trusteeship of society today translates into many different kind of ideas and which are discussed by the way in the book about stakeholder capitalism about the social angle that companies need to bring to their way of doing business the whole idea around esg compliance reporting today in the corporate sector comes from that that the business cannot separate itself from the very society that it exists in so growing up i saw entrepreneurs taking an idea and generating shared capital value eventually and shared social value through their businesses for society and that has been my biggest learning and i think that is why the first chapter in the book was on india's power of enterprise did your idea of entrepreneurship and what it takes to do business in india change after you went on the trip oh yes absolutely um you know so i i started my career with KPMG consulting in the United States, uh, and then I came back to India and started my own venture. I did not join my family business, and I was twenty-one, a young woman entrepreneur in early two thousands in India. And there is a whole backstory to that, and we'll come to that in a bit. But actually, for me, entrepreneurship till I went on this drive was largely about startups and business people like me, who either were from business families or were. urban dwellers like you and me were going out there and starting their startups and ventures when i went on this drive i met people from every strata of society from different walks of life in corners which are very remote part of the of our country and i saw in fact you know the the book talks about this uh, women this tribal women the bhumiya paroja and gond women uh, in the eastern ghats of india uh, i met them while driving from araku in andhra pradesh to koraput and in odisha in the middle of this jungle these women were selling their forest produce in a tribal tribal markets are a very mainstay of the tribal societies in india they happen once a week or twice you know twice a month and people will bring their produce to those markets to trade 
kid you not, the people came filled up. I mean, there were buses and three-wheelers and two-wheelers and, you know, little tempos and sumos that were filled with people. These women came. The market day was under this beautiful, bright tarpaulins. And these women in their all, you know, finest revelry had all the products from the beadies to the honey to the produce all out there. They were selling them. And in two to three hours, they sold out. They sold that produce and they went back. And, you know, when I asked them about entrepreneurship, they didn't know that concept. All they knew is that they obviously living the life they lived in the heart of the forest had to make their own living conditions happen. They, they were not going to get any employment from anybody. And so they knew. They knew how to spot a market opportunity. They knew at what price to sell their produce. They knew how to display their products. How different that is, you know. I, I thought it opened my mind that entrepreneurship is not just about yuppie startups, but it's also about your inherent ability and your commitment to self-reliance. And when I take that lens, it is amazing the kind of abundance of this power of enterprise that the Indian people have. And I think that changed the way I look at entrepreneurship itself. Now, Bhairavi, coming back to your trip, uh, why you did this trip is quite evident uh, for anyone who picks up your book. What I'm interested in is knowing about how uh, you went about planning this. Uh, what were the stops you picked? Uh, why did you choose to go to those places? And what was the process like? You know, Divya, I'm an entrepreneur, which means I'm one of those who will jump off the cliff and build a parachute along the way because that's what entrepreneurs do. They begin, as Goethe says, there is so much, uh, you know, there is so much in just beginning. And uh, when I went sort of to, you know, plan about this trip, I had one lens because I wanted to understand how as an entrepreneur myself and how people made their livelihood choices, their entrepreneurship choices, their self-reliance choices. But the minute we started on the drive, there was just no looking back. There was so much more to explore, so much more to learn that entrepreneurship and how people chose those decisions became just one thread. And many other threads came. And that's why there are 12 superpowers in this book. But frankly, after our first two days, we had no plan. We just knew a general direction that we wanted to travel along the eastern coast. We wanted to go to the northeast, the north, and then you know along the western border to south. And I think being an entrepreneur really helped because I'm used to unpredictability. I am used to risk-taking and I'm used to exploring in general. And I think that kind of came in handy because I didn't need a lot of preconditions to be in place to be on that journey. You work in the supply chain and logistics uh, industry. And, uh, you know, I understand that you got introduced to the industry by virtue of, uh, you know, it being a family business. Uh, but it's largely considered to be a male-dominated space with a lot of gender imbalance. Uh, how have you seen uh, this play out in the supply chain and logistics sector? Uh, is there something that uh, you have done to address this? And are things changing? Things are definitely Definitely changing. But I also think, again, as I said, how you define entrepreneurship, how you define women-led entrepreneurship completely changes the way you look at this. If you want to be uh, white and more inclusive and you include the street vendors, uh, the market, the, the women market uh, vendors of Imphal in Manipur to, you know, women like the Bhumiya Paroja women I met, not just women like me. If you want to include all of us in one group called women entrepreneurs, then India has a 
abundance and great number of women entrepreneurs, but we are not counted. We are not counted in nation's accounting because most of our women entrepreneurs operate in the unorganized sector. It is the same for the supply chain sector, largely because the sector is so fragmented. There is a whole number of large players, right? And a lot of women do play a role in supply chain sector, especially in post-production packaging, especially in uh, designing. But the problem is that you don't see them because we are invisible. Because we are invisible, we are not noted and we are not counted. So when I joined the industry, I've loaded trucks, I have packed things, I've run forklifts. And, you know, when I used to run some of our warehouses directly, we used to have a full woman shift, only women in the warehouse running equipment, loading trucks. So it is absolutely possible. What we do need to create, and it is not just true for the supply chain industry, but it is true for every industry, are toilets. I'll tell you, when I started, Divya, I had no toilets in the warehouses I worked because I took them on rent. My first customer was Lego. And, uh, you know, I was operating under those asbestos roof warehouses that you take uh, in, in the dusty bylands of Bhivandi in the outskirts of Mumbai. I was 21. I'd just come back from America and my experience of working was very different over there. And here I was, there's no bathroom for 100 kilometers for a woman. So truck drivers would park their trucks in parallel so that in between I could use the space in privacy to, to go to the bathroom. And that's when I went ahead and then built my own warehouses. The first thing I did was build toilets. So I think first we have to build toilets. And second, we have to ensure safety, which means public lighting, street lighting. And third is, you know, ability to commute. I think if you give these three things to women, and I met these chili farmers in Guntur in Andhra Pradesh, and they were saying that, you know what, we are not busy all the, all the through the year because, you know, chili is only harvested at certain point of time by a Kuntu produces 25% of the world's chili, right? So it tells you what these women are busy with and what kind of load they handle. But even they were willing to travel for jobs as long as a safe passage was given to them. So I think toilets, mobility and street lighting. We just need to take care of this much and women are just ready. Your book is a treasure trove of anecdotes of uh, interesting people that you've met along the way, like the Naga chefs, for example, who are putting uh, India on the global map. Uh, could you talk about some of uh, these people who you've covered on the book, uh, interesting anecdotes or memorable experiences? Actually, the, the, the book is not just about the 51 days, Divya. It's a whole lot of experiences of travel over the two decades because, like you said, I'm a supply chain entrepreneur. So I have to, you know, travel and I, you know, it's nature of my business is that I'm multi-locational as a business. So I've always had this privilege of traveling, knowing, understanding. And I think along the trip, I met some fascinating individuals. Um, I met a guy who was walking, his name is Cedric. He was walking from from Singapore to France. And I met him on the road between Imphal and Kohima. Uh, and, and, and um, you know, all he said was that when he entered India, he met a certain kind of openness and welcome that he had missed till at that point in time. And that made me think about why we are such an open society to strangers and outsiders and 
how that has played a role in the way we trade as people. You know, it kind of took me back to a time when I had gone to Orissa, for example, um, for a festival called Bali Jatra, uh, which is a festival the Odia people celebrate every year to celebrate their voyages to Bali, Java and Sumatra. It's celebrated about 15 days after the Diwali on Karthik Purnima. It is one of the largest, uh, you know, open air trade fairs in, the, in, in Asia. And you'll be amazed. Women will sing songs for safe voyages for the sadhabas with the traditional Oriya mariners and, you know, put this little diya in this, you know, boat made of either paper or leaves and put it in the Mahanadi River at Katak. And, you know, it's amazing how much we must value trade that now nobody's sailing to Bali from Katak anymore, but we're still celebrating the festival. And then, you know, you go to Kerala and you see that for thousands of years from 3000 BC, people have been coming to trade with the Marialis. And, you know, people go and today the, the tourists come and stay in homestays. And I thought that, you know, oh my God, look how our ability to be open and trusting of the world helps us in our in, in the way we trade and in the way our children learn multiple languages and accents and you know young people then join you know call centers and so it's interesting how actually what civilizationally we have inherited shapes the way we conduct ourselves as a society in the modern republic today and the book really talks about the fact that we can use all of that to actually do more we can do that to have more and more Indians participate and benefit from globalization, for example, right? You know, we talked about, for example, uh, interesting stories of small little, you know, hamlets that do amazing work, uh, whether it's uh, a small heritage uh, building somewhere restored in Ladakh, uh, where an organization comes together to keep the local heritage alive, or a bunch of young volunteers in Jaisalmer, or for that matter, what happens in in Hampi, you know, or, or what happens in uh, in Madurai with the Madurai Mali and how uh, those flower vendors have figured out how to sell to the best perfumers in France. And I think we know this. We are inherently wired for it. And when we give all of these a framework for policy and better augmentation, whether it's through education, whether it's through ease of doing business, whether it's through connecting, you know, physically through logistics and supply chain. I mean, that's the way I look at it. We will unleash the potential of this country more and more. I think to me, that was the biggest takeaway coming back from that trip. You've met an interesting diversity of people on this trip. Uh, how did you decide who you want to talk to? How did you get them to open up to you and uh, talk about their experiences and their lives? And how long did you uh, talk to them? How much time did you spend with them? I think it's a great question, right? Because we all travel. And so we want to know, like, what can we learn when we travel? Who do we meet? And how do we, you know, make sure that our experience gets better, right? And I think the one criteria that I keep is that I like to talk to people who are very different than me. Um, you know, people I would not meet otherwise. So, for example, I spoke to a guy who was a statue maker. I spoke to an old gentleman who was making filters out of mud. I talked to a woman who was a cash vendor at a market because these are not the people I meet every day. So that's my first criteria. They should be very different than who I am. 
Second is that if I have a certain particular stated purpose in mind, like if I want to understand how women are making livelihood choices, of course, I'll seek more women to talk to and women who are actually engaged in some kind of livelihood activity, right? But if I'm interested in talking and understanding about farmers, then I'll talk to more farmers. Now, on a trip like this, we had a wide section of people we wanted to talk to because there were other people in the car and they also had that stated purpose of learning and journey. So we would stop by and talk to all different kinds of people. And I learned also from the subjects they identified, right? In terms of people we wanted to talk, people we wanted to interview. And sometimes while talking to a particular group of people, like we were talking to these uh, group of women, in a small village called Bauti Jolly, which is about two hours from Shantini Ketan in West Bengal. This is the village of Santhals. You know, India's current president is a woman from the Santhal tribes. Now, when we were talking to the Santhals, we were talking about a self-help group and how they use the money in that group to buy their health solutions. Like, how do they buy medicine? How do they buy healthcare? Right. But while talking to them, they were telling us about, oh, but, you know, we've been, you know, we are, we're a strong race. We've been doing this. And I learned a, a, a certain genealogy of the Santals that I never knew that the Santals are mentioned in our Puranas. That, in fact, it was the Santals even before the 1857 halt that it was the Santals who actually took the front row to attack the British and, uh, you know, threw arrows at them and drew them out and fought the land aggradization and fought the zamindari system, fought the revenue system, and it continues. And then that kind of made me understand how the Santal started the Naxal movement in Naxal Bhatt. And, it, you know, you suddenly understand a whole thing about a modern India in a small village where you're trying to understand healthcare choices that a self-help group was making. So I think when you are out there, if you are also very open and not very judgmental in your framework of learning, then you become more open and you receive more, uh, much more than you had intended to receive. And I, to me, so these are the two criteria that I keep in mind. Coming back to entrepreneurship, uh, your, the chapter in the book uh, deals with uh, many threads or many different kinds of entrepreneurs. You have your street vendors, you have the tribal women that you mentioned uh, before in the podcast, and you also have your techies and your startups. So how did you... Uh, frame this narrative in your head and what what is the overall picture that it presents so if you see the book it talks about each power and how that power can be called to action by people like you and me right and how the state or the policy can support that power to augment more right, right? so that's the essence of each power now as far as enterprise is concerned it is in so much abundance it is everywhere so first of all do we do justice by boxing it only as startups or should we have a more wider definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur in the country, first and foremost? Second, the question really is that once we reframe it, then what is the purpose of our entrepreneurship? Because our power of enterprise is so widespread, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be only for profit making. Look at Lijat, look at Amul. Enterprises literally started with an idea to provide equity provide justice of earning, you know, reduce income inequality, reduce corruption, for example, in milk production, right? And look at them today. They are, you know, Amul is one of the 30 largest dairy companies in the world. And it's a cooperative and it's a social enterprise. So I think the chapter, in the chapter, I wanted to ask this question, 
what kind of entrepreneurship, what purpose of entrepreneurship, and therefore, how do we use our power of enterprise to address developmental and societal challenges in our country and create this idea of, you know, the, the chapter talks about the scenario of Pehle India, where India comes first for everybody. And I, I, I enjoyed doing that because it took me in directions which were very broad, uh, which were very innovative and, and uh, which were very hopeful. Sure, you know, it is essential to celebrate entrepreneurship and wealth creation. Uh, but at the same time, there is also this huge gap, this huge socioeconomic disparity between the rich who are getting richer and the poor whose challenges have only exacerbated in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, how do we attempt to solve this? And are there a few lessons or takeaways that your trip has allowed you to have regarding this? I think uh, we have to, as I said, I was always taught that business is a collective exercise in trusteeship of society. And therefore, the private sector has a huge role to play, not just in terms of the money uh, and the wealth through corporate social responsibility or personal philanthropy, but in terms of time, in terms of skills, in terms of ideas, because when we bring all of that to issues that our society deals with, in terms of earning inequality, in terms of social inequality, access inequality, we actually make business what it is supposed to do, which is that it moves the needle of the society forward. And by doing so, it changes the very nature of the marketplace itself. So think about digital payments, right? How have they changed the nature of marketplace? Of course, they've created huge equality, right? But at the same time, they have also created a new marketplace. Therefore, my challenge to myself as an entrepreneur or any business person is that first and foremost, when you think of your business, do you think of the society in which you're seeding that business? And how are you reshaping the market? Because you cannot reshape the market without impacting society in a positive way. It won't happen. That's the first part. The second part is how much of your time today is going in doing things which are more about your role as a citizen, your role as an individual in your society and not just about your business. Because I believe that there is a return back into your business. When you go out there and spend time in society in, in certain pockets where you normally don't interact with, you actually learn so much more and it comes back to how you design your business strategies as well. So there's gain for you. But most importantly, you are not just bringing your money that you wrote a check, you gave a couple of crores somewhere or you, you, know, you support something through corporate social responsibility, but you're actually giving time and you're giving knowledge. And when you do that, there is a significant transformation that happens inside you. I do that all the time. I have a foundation that I started after I came back from the trip, because there was this learning that entrepreneurship is not just about yuppie businesses in urban India. And it's called IEF Entrepreneurship Foundation. It primarily trains entrepreneurs in tier three and tier four towns in India to, you know, sustain and scale their businesses. So, you know, we work with entrepreneurs who have minimum two to three employees sometimes, but in a very small town. And I go and give time pro bono to teach that class. I requested other people who I knew in my network on LinkedIn, in my companies, friends, networks who also go and give their time. Today, we've been able to train thousands, thousands of entrepreneurs across the country by people giving pro bono time. This foundation only has one employee. <laughs> it doesn't need a lot of funding because it partners with local people and it partners with people like us in the corporate sector 
who are willing to go and give their time to train a few entrepreneurs. So this is the way I look at it. It's I say that money is important, but your time and your energy is far more important when you bring that as an entrepreneur, as a business person to societal good, transformations can happen at a scale which is unprecedented. Thank you for your time, Bhairavi. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Divya. And I hope people will go and pick up the book and come back and, you know, give their ideas and suggestions. And I'd love this conversation to continue. Thank you so much. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'd love to hear your feedback. So do let us know what you think. I'm Divya Shekhar. See you next time.